two sisters fighting with the rest of their family over the inheritance of their dying aunt, played by legend Kathleen Turner, no less. Oh, and a funeral from the UK? That sounds very similar to another funeral a few years later from the US because that's right, we have Dean Craig on today, who is the writer and director of The Estate coming out this Friday, November 4th, and writer of both the original and remake version of Death at a Funeral here on Overdue Rentals. Welcome back to Overdue Rentals, everybody. I'm Matthew Shuckman. And I'm Cinema Blends Mike Reyes. And as you heard, we have Dean Craig on today. Yes, the man, the myth, the legend, because this is somebody that, whether you know it or not, is definitely you've seen his work and you may not know it, you know, and you know, and and he's 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 written a lot of stuff that you know. And he's this is not his first directorial film, but it's you know, it's coming to the point where you're gonna start seeing him. Uh, as a multi-hyphenate a lot more, I would say, uh, after the estate comes out. So it's great to have Dean here to talk about these movies. Matthew, uh, first of all, I just want to stop you right there because I thought you said we were having Daniel Craig on tonight and I was really upset to Mike see- Mike, why is it Mike, you were not going to show up. I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell Dean that you weren't showing up for him. You just thought- you were Oh, no, no. The, actually, <laughs> the, the absolute truth is, just like Matthew has said, Dean- is an absolute delight to talk to, just as his work is fantastic to follow, because not only are we talking about his new film, The Estate, but I, I mean, if, I don't know if Matthew's already made this clear. If not, I'm just gonna throw it out there again. Uh, we are covering both versions of Death at a Funeral, which he happened to write, and Frank Oz directed the original, and I'm trying to remember who directed the remake. Neil LeBute directed the remake. Neil LeBute, oh yes, yeah. oh. That was another thing that was kind of- Which we would, I would have liked to also talk about, but we had so much stuff that it was it was impossible to get everything. And next time we have Dean on, we'll, we'll talk a little bit of little butte in there because that's another thing that's just like, how did that- <laughs> I get Chris, you know what, since Chris Rock, well, you know what? Let's talk to Dean first and then we'll come out of it because there's something he said in there that will lead into what I was about to say. So let's first get Dean in to kind of discuss these things and then we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more after. Esteemed listeners, please welcome Dean Craig to the Overdue Rentals Rental Counter. So how long have you been doing this um, this podcast? Oh, um, well, the the podcast itself. I mean, Mike and I have been doing this for decades. Well, me a decade and maybe a little over a decade. Him about a decade. Uh, mm-hmm. But we started. The, what happened was the idea was that we wanted to start this. We it was it was a COVID thing, you know. Right. As lockdown was there, we said like, oh, let's you know, let's do something of our own. Hey, Mike. Hey, keep telling the story. Well, it was just <laughs> I was just going over the story. Uh, Dean wanted to know how we got started on doing overdue rentals. Oh, money, obviously. <laughs> We're rolling in it. All these oh records don't God. come cheap. <laughs> That's true. I'm also aware, I'm like painfully aware that you have a much more interesting background than I have. I should probably, get, just because I moved into a new house so I, and I've basically just gone up to a sort of a corner area where I can hopefully speak without being bothered. Uh, <laughs> but, Same yeah. here. I am in the... So it's either one or the other. Yeah, Mike's Mike's in his new house too. So it's you know I'm I'm the only one who's stuck back where I where I where I've been for a while. How's it going, Mike? Is it quite is it as painful as it is for me? The whole move thing. Oh, probably. This is my first house, so the basement is basically where I I chose to eat. It was either the second bedroom or the basement for my office. Okay. I chose the basement because I thought it'd be cooler, and plus, you know, more room and. What have you? But, I can use a second bedroom uh, when when I come visit. 
It's uh, not quite set up just yet. And the second bedroom is going to be my wife's like pastel gamer girl room, as she calls it. <laughs> what? The pastel gamer girl room. Wow. That sounds sort of cool. It does. No, I can't wait for her to have it set up. Like she's yeah. looking at neon signs and this really cool gaming desk. Oh, amazing. So your, your wife is a gamer? A little bit, yeah. She definitely is. And I think she'll probably, the thing is she's probably going to do it more now that she has a dedicated space because we're moving out of an apartment. Well, we moved out of an apartment. So yeah, this is a lot more space for us to do things. And she wants to do more crafting and Mm -hmm. what have you in this office space of hers. Great. I'm just in the studio. I got, I got nothing. Okay. (laughs) Where, where are you both? Are you in, are you in LA? Are you in New York? I feel like it's one or the other. I'm New York. I'm in Jersey. Okay, cool. We're in a similar area, but yeah. more importantly, because we don't want to, I mean, I, I want, I'd rather just, I honestly, I'd rather just talk about where we're, where, we're, where we're from and where we're at right now, to be honest with you. But Dean, thank you so much for joining us because we do have some very important stuff we have to get to you with because we have the estate coming out this Friday, November mm-hmm. 4th. And I, I, I have to know, and this, this, this is something with a lot of movies, I guess, with me, because you're always interested in where the idea, you know, germinates. And I'm wondering, is it literally the idea of you wanting, like, I kind of want to do an inheritance story, or do you see, like, a character of Macy first and say, I want to do something about a character like that, and it builds out from there? God, uh, I mean, this is like, I knew you were going to ask this question, so I wish <laughs> I was dead. Uh, no pressure, just a big first question. <laughs> So I also, I have to go back quite a long way to, to the actual very beginnings of the idea because it was a long time. And I, and I actually wrote it originally as a TV pilot for HBO. I was commissioned oh. to a TV pilot. So it was, um, and it was a sort of, a, it, as these things often are, it's a kind of a confluence of things of, of like where you are trying to, so, so I was interested in the inheritance thing. I, you know, I, and we were, and I was working with a producer and we were um, thinking of things that sort of uh, that, that were around sort of crazy inheritance stories that we were sort of hearing here and there and, and just sort of interested in. And then the other part of it was that I was very interested in doing a film uh, where and having done myself quite a lot of films where the kind of the, the guys, the boys are sort of the the, the the sort of people who are breaking yeah. the moral taboos and sort of being a little bit outrageous and, and uh, you know, sort of, uh, and have questionable behavior. And I really wanted to do something. I just felt like you you very rarely see it in the, with the same thing with the female characters. Do you know what I mean? Where they're leading the way in terms of that sort of fun and provocative sort of, and somewhat outrageous behavior. So I really, so that was a big part of it for me. I just wanted to do, do something with predominantly female characters um, and, yeah, so that was a part of it. And then, yeah, of course, the whole inheritance thing was just, you know, funny to me, you know, and I just know so many people who've gone through real sort of hellish, it sort of, it just brings out the worst in people. And you have these otherwise quite sort of peaceful, calm families who just go absolutely bananas when there's an inheritance and to, to be fought over because it's, there's always seems to be a gray area, it's subjective and, you know, but then of course, I thought it'd be funnier for me, if the person that whose inheritance they're fighting over is actually still alive, <laughs> um, and they're still around, and then it's just a question of trying to, yeah, trying to get in with them and trying to 
And that's another thing I always find funny, the idea of trying to ingratiate yourself with someone who is almost impossible to ingratiate yourself with. Um, that was a kind of a, yeah, just a funny idea to me. And also this is a film that kind of thumbs its nose at the sort of uh, notion that you have to have likable female characters for people to really get it. It's, it, it, I, 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 whenever I've heard someone say, oh, well, this is an unlikable female lead. Yeah. It's like, okay, are they supposed to be? And even if they're not, why can't we have these characters? Totally. I mean, Anna Ferris in this movie especially is just, she's like a bullet from a gun. Yeah. <laughs> And I think it's, and it was one of the reasons, apart from just, I, you know, I've always loved Anna Faris, but I, I think that having someone who is n like known for being so likable and really is so likable, not just on screen, but in real life, having someone like that play the character who is, you know, just like, who doesn't give a fuck what anyone thinks of them <laughs> is just, it just, it just adds that extra little bit of fun to it, I think. Oh, exactly. She seems game for anything. And then you pair her with Tony Collette, who is also game for anything. But in this case, she gets to play the other side of the coin where it's very reserved and okay. I yeah. may not be the best person in the world, but at least I'm a nice person. <laughs> she's trying. She's trying to yeah. hold on to her moral core. She's trying, but it's uh, it's a challenge throughout. Yeah. Yeah, what's the great thing about that character is that you know, a lot of times if you come into a movie like this, you expect, you know, I mean, granted, she does have the moment or those moments, but you automatically expect it's going to go to the, to the place where it's like she has some revelation in front of the families and they all say something in a certain way. And it, it not doesn't necessarily go that way. She, she's not that perfect of a person or she's not that moral of a person ultimately at the end, at the end of the day. I, I absolutely agree. I wanted, I wanted them all to sort of have that kind of human element to them and so yeah i mean you, you know you might be sort of referring to the starbucks moment I, mean, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to give too much away not that it's a massive moment but it's like for me that was a sort of yeah one of those moments where you expect it to go a certain way and then oh it, it's like they're all they're all human they're all kind of share these the same flaws really ultimately. yeah i mean ultimately i mean again i won't say anything specific because i don't want to give anything away but and, I, and, I, and it is, by saying it, it almost is giving it away, I think, for people who yeah, kind of we know it. But like, yeah. you expect almost the ending to be like a turn of heart for somebody that does, because of a speech she makes, which again, technically does, but it's not the same way. It's not what you would normally expect. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, and and, uh, and to your point, Mike, I think that I I really, you know, look, I, you know, I've been writing for quite a while. And of course, you often get the note of like likable characters, you know, and all that. And I, um, <laughs> Yeah, this this film specifically was designed to kind of um, to not follow that rule, I would say. Yes, to to like ag actively go against it, perhaps. Well, it's it's also, I mean, look, almost every single film that you've been, whether it's you just wrote it or you, you know you've been involved with it in some way, you have had some of the most stacked casts performing your work ever, and you come into something like this, and you just like, first of all, just Tony Collette alone is automatically just like, because everybody know everybody knows how amazing she is, but then you add on like Kathleen Turner, and then you, of course, Anna, Rosemary, David Duchovny, Ron Livingston, all these people. Like, how is, do you feel that like, does it actually put pressure on you knowing that you have all this behind you? <laughs> um, are you kind of saying that if I mess it up, it's really my fault, basically. <laughs> that's that's where we're getting to. Um, and I, not necessarily. 
<laughs> I think what Matt's trying to say is, do you want to reconsider being a filmmaker right now? Oh, wow. <laughs> Are you sure this is a good film and, and, and like a, a good actually film, as the kids like to say? Right. I mean, it is, uh, God, well, it, is, it is pressure, I have to say. And, you're, you know, you do have a point. Like, you know, when you're working with amazing people who are, uh, you know, I, yeah, I think, I think it does add pressure. That's the answer. <laughs> it, well, it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't. Here, that's the truth. It doesn't. It doesn't. Because on the one hand, you really uh, you have a lot to live up to. And of course, you're, you know, you're going in and directing actors who are a brilliant b have like been doing this a lot more long longer and a lot more than i have and c have probably worked with some of the greatest filmmakers uh alive and uh, you know so there yeah it's it's a lot of pressure <laughs> um but at the same time you also have this amazing talent to work with and this and that on the on the other hand makes my job a lot easier yeah. i can just sort of you know i mean they say that 50% of directing is casting and I, you know, there is, there is real truth to that. Like if you get great people, they come along and they, you know, and then they bring and they add to, to what you've already got. So it's um, yeah, I've, I've been lucky in, in, with, with my cast for sure. I was going to say if the pressure wasn't alleviated by David Duchovny, just looking like he's David Duchovny looking like he's digging into the sleeves of his character with delight. Oh, and then God. Ron Livingston, the fuck boy scene. Just the, if there's any indication anyone needs that Ron Livingston's having fun, that is the one right there because I just love his like the high pitch. It's like I am not a fuck boy. <laughs> it's just that you wouldn't even expect that from Ron Livingston. No, it's true. Bless him. Bless both of them. They, they were so game as everyone was in this film. They were so game and up for it and up for playing their part. Their parts. You know, Ron obviously plays a really beaten down, bedraggled guy i mean it was like some are uh, genuinely some scenes were painful to shoot because i was like oh my god this and i would go up to him afterwards and be like you're okay you're right and he was like yeah, yeah i'm fine you know but it was you know he did it so well <laughs> and was so kind of committed to that role and especially because his actual wife who's being really nasty to him on you know in all of those scenes so and actually like there were some scenes where she went even further and I had to I had to bring it back because I was just like this is too much <laughs> this is just too much mm. um but yeah he was so great and David was just um yeah like he did take delight in this particular role and it, I have to say it was a delight watching him and having him on the film he is, uh, he is a uh, a real treasure and uh, yeah, very lucky to have him. He was great. Yeah, I think I think people even even I remember even the first X Files episode. People forget how funny he actually kind of oh, was. Yeah, totally. uh, and then he's done plenty of comedy after. But yeah, it's people forget how good he is at comedy. He's really sort of natural with comedy. I think it's you know, and I think understandably, I think he probably wants to do more of it because he's really incredibly talented. At it. And he and he, you know, my my first actual experience of um, David was when I was however old watching Larry Sanders when it was on in the UK and seeing David Duchovny. And I don't think I was even aware of X-Files. And I was just mm. like, just thought he was so funny in Larry Sanders. And so, and again, just so up for it and, lamb, yeah. you know, kind of lambasting himself and, you know, just having Par a real, yeah. Apparently the love affair was his idea from what I understand. When I looked at the backstage stuff of Larry Sanders, it was his idea to do the whole, like, I'm in love with Larry thing. Yeah, I think I think I may have heard that too, and it doesn't surprise me. He comes in, he comes in with a lot of ideas, David, and they're very good. So yeah, I everyone should work with David. He's great. 
And remember, there, uh, remember there was once an era where everyone's like, oh, David, uh, David Duchovny is so wooden. Like, I think I remember, I don't know if it was Entertainment Weekly or some publication published a line they thought was a joke and they're like, oh yeah, they're remaking Thunderbirds and they're casting David Duchovny and Keanu Reeves in the leads. And it's like I just mean, that whole knock against both of their acting performances. Oh God, oh, people have got to say things, haven't they? I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> It's I mean, I love a good Barb as much as the next person, but I, I mean, the years have proven to us that neither of those men is particularly wooden. So we really have to look elsewhere for why certain performances may not have worked. Right, yeah, I think that's, I think that's true. And I think, you know, luckily in those two instances, they've done enough work, they have enough of a body of work that they can, you can see their range and, you know, and their abilities. So, so uh, yeah, but, but David, I think was, in this film, especially for me, like anything but wooden and incredibly, you know, very subtle and very, uh, yeah, anyway, I, yeah, I loved him in it. And you can see him in the estate, which opens tomorrow night. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Before we switch gears too, though, I do have another question specifically, because I, I get interested in the idea of, not, not the idea of improv per se, but the idea of, again, you being first a writer how much of what you are writing is literally on the page to what's coming out on the film? Because I'm thinking specifically of the second time I think we see Ellen when they show up at the door and she's drinking pickle juice with the pickle still in the jar. Like, right. is that like literally written into the script? That's like the day of like, do you want to drink pickle juice? Would you be okay with that? Well, it's a very good question. And it, it really depends on the actors actually, because some actors really love to improvise and some actors don't and so you sort of work with you know you work with the individuals and their and their you know personal preferences so Kayla as an example is a great improviser and if you've seen Kirby Enthusiasm you probably <laughs> are already aware of that which I was as well and I was like just I love this this uh, actor and I just yeah really wanted her in it and the pickle thing was completely her thing. In fact, she she said it on the very first time I I had a Zoom with her, where we went, you know, after we sent her the script, and you know, she and so we were doing that kind of meeting, and it was almost the first thing she said was, "Can I have eat a thing for pickles? I want to eat pickles and drink pickles." And I was like, "Sure, <laughs> you know, yeah, great." And you know, and then you you think, well, we'll play with it and we'll see what happens, but. Uh, yeah, she she just had that idea in her head, and you know, and, and whenever, whenever I have to say, I mean, I you know, I think it's whenever actors come in with ideas, I always want to see it. I want to always want to try it because you just never know, you know. And if an actor's seeing it in their head, there's probably a good reason for it. So yeah, that was a complete Kayla thing, <laughs> and Kayla did a lot of improvising and is extremely funny and extremely good at it. Shame you couldn't have parlayed that into a, a product placement deal with Vlasic. It's a shame. It's maybe it's not too late. I don't know. Um, but, you could digitally enhance it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There you go. Um, but yeah, anyway, I have to say that I think all at certain points, like everyone does a bit of improv and comes out with good lines. And, you know, like I said, I was very lucky. I had actors from Tony to Kathleen to everyone was like very additive to the uh, process, you know, um, yeah. Well, well, talking again about those amazing casts, because again, here on Overdue Rentals, we do like to talk about films that people, you know, were once, you know, just couldn't get out of their mouths and now that everything's coming out and it's all about the superhero movies, they kind of forgot like, oh, we got, for let's talk about, because you have two versions of Death as a Funeral mm. that have both 
amazingly stat cast as well. But yeah. I, I have to, like, I, I don't want to start off, I kind of want to, like, in, in some ways start off just talking about the original and then going into the remake. But I, I do wonder, when it came to the remake, you know, you're still listed as the only credited writer. Was it, did you rewrite the entire script or was it something where like they just took it and then melded it along their own along the way? Um, so it was a, so, I mean, obviously it was a, you know, just just to go back a step, it was, it was a bizarre situation for me to have a film that had just come out really. I mean, it was still kind of, you know, in that sort of period where you've had a film out and it's like still being watched basically. And then I get a call saying Chris Rock wants to do a remake, hmm. which was like incredible. Firstly, like, oh, hang on, they're going to remake my film. We just made it. <laughs> I like, just made it And also it's Chris Rock, who is obviously one of the greatest stand-up comedians to ever live. And, you know, so I'm, I was absolutely blown away. And then to see that cast that they brought together which I still look at and still can't believe who we had in it. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it, the cast even got better with age, I think, you know, because Kevin Hart was in it and, you know, but at the time, you know, he was really just starting out in movies. And now, of course, he's, a, he's an enormous star. So, yeah, it was, um, that was an amazing thing. In terms of the writing, it was really, you know, Chris really sort of did, mm. I mean, you know, I could have had a crack at sort of doing it doing the sort of the African-American um, rejigging of dialogue, but it may not have been as successful as Chris doing it. So um, yeah, so he really just just rejigged it, you know, in the, in the way that he did, but the kind of the, the, the fundamental characters and storyline um, and plot and everything like that and the structure are the same as the original film. So it was really yeah. just a sort of a, a cultural, uh, a cultural pass, I would say, with some added jokes as well. Well, I, that, but then talking about the original then as well, because again, I don't think, you know, something has to be, again, you do have American actors in it, there are two American actors in it at least. Um, but, you know, when it's British written, British produced, British cast, but Frank Oz comes in as the director. Yeah. And I'm wondering how all that, was that something where like he saw the script and wanted to do it or just like, it, you know, used like actually reached out. How did that come about that it was Frank Oz that actually ended up directing the original? Yeah, so I'd, I'd written this as, you know, in, in my apartment in London and, you know, just life takes on strange journeys, doesn't it? But uh, <laughs> I had um, connected with a couple of American producers actually called Larry Malkin and Cher Stallings. And we were producing, so they were producing it and I was on board to actually, and I, I was planning to direct. This was obviously a long time ago, but I was, you know, I was thinking of it as something I would direct and, you know, potentially for a much smaller budget than we eventually did it for. And then um, at a certain point, Cher had used to work for Frank and she said, can I send the script to Frank? I just want to see what he thinks of it. You know, he's, He's obviously amazing with comedy. He might have some good notes. He might have some like nice opinions or whatever, you know, just be good to share it with him. I was like, yeah, brilliant. Share it with Frank Oz. Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, and then I get a call saying, so Frank's read the script. He wants to direct it. He loves it. And I'm <laughs> like, oh my God. Firstly, it doesn't look like I'm directing it anymore. Uh, but secondly, how... Uh, how incredible is that? I mean, it's, he's Frank Oz, he's one of the best ever. And, you know, and uh, I love what Frank did with the film. And I, 
you know, I still love him and that he's he's someone actually I have to say that I I speak to still quite regularly and get advice from. As you can imagine, he's quite a great person great. to do that with. He's like he's what I call my uh, bat phone uh, <laughs> when I'm on set or you know, and I've got something going on. I'm like Frank, I need your advice, and he is extremely generous with it. Uh, it's, I mean, that's just amazing to hear that that sort of a relationship formed from a movie that really did come out of nowhere and just swept everybody by with, it swept everyone up with its its humor. And just, I love the fact that there are people out there that know how to do farce, proper farce that just layers upon itself and slowly unwinds and unravels into something bigger. Because Anybody can look at the word farce or the concept farce and just think it's a whole bunch of people running from room to room and chaos and surprises. But all of that really still has to have worth and catharsis. Otherwise, it's just silly. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, thank you for saying that. And I uh, I think it was sort of probably a kind of uh, partly my upbringing in the UK, you know, and just being exposed to a lot of British comedy, Brit British, uh, you know, there's a there's a very uh, keen English tradition of farce, and you know, so I grew up with, I mean, all kinds of things, but you know, Forty Towers is obviously one of the big the big influences. I was, funny enough, I was talking about it with uh, with some people the other day that when I was a child, I would watch these episodes of Forty Towers over and over again with my brother, my older brother. And I was, you know, even from a very young age. And at the time, we just thought we were wasting time and just watching TV. But I didn't realize I was actually learning mm. about fast structure in, you know, in this sort of weird, yeah, just sort of childhood way of studying how these things would work. And, you know, so, yeah, I was lucky there. Well, does that also fit into, because again, I don't, I don't know, maybe you originally wanted to write TV, maybe you wanted to write for, for stage because a lot in a lot of ways that's a funeral especially not, not in the estate as well because mm. I think when Mike and I originally first started talking about wanting to do this we were talking about films such as very specifically the film version they did in the 90s of Noises Off right. and there's a there's a very similar feel of how you can feel how this could play off on stage if, if possible as well did you feel other types of mediums coming into helping toward that as well yeah I mean it's it's interesting I think that I think that you sort of have diff different influences and then they come together when you're in the writing phase. That's that's what I think. So, I, you know, when I was writing Death at a Funeral as an example, I was really, I, you know, I was sort of aware of different influences that I had that were kind of some stage influences, as you mentioned, Noises Off. And, um, you know, of course, you know, the, the TV farces also. And then, you know, then American comedy was also a, an influence. Kirby enthusiasm is really fast. It really <laughs> yeah. is. And, it, and again, like, uh, you know, Larry David is tremendous at it. Um, so it was a sort of, yeah, just sort of this, this mixture of, um, and, and then I'm just, I'm just, all, I've just always been a very big sort of fan of film, basically. And I just, I, and I love the idea of making films maybe specifically I mean I you know I have worked in TV and I you know and of course I still watch and love TV but films was always the, the medium that I wanted to get into and wanted to be um, part of so it was yeah it was sort of melding those influences into the film world if you know in, in a sense um, but also you know 
the stage sort of possibilities of death at a funeral are still out there and it's something it's something we're looking at. Um, okay. So, yeah. So you never know. That's exciting. I mean, it's, you never know what's going to go to stage and how, because something that always comes up and it's something that's definitely sort of bore fruit over the years is like in the early days of the internet, I remember stumbling upon MGM had put up a site out of all studios and they're like, we want to do stage plays and all these other things for all these properties. And it was like Pink Panther, Birdcage, Legally Blonde, and all these other things. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, Birdcage obviously exactly, exactly. <laughs> it has the pedigree with the Cajafol. Pink Panther, you, you could just do a shot in the dark, which was a play in his own yeah. right. Yeah. But then Legally Blonde and now Some Like It Hot are yeah. recent. Yeah, Some Like It Hot is just opening in previews in New York. Oh man! Okay. It's amazing how certain movies can lend themselves to that. Mm. But to your point, like this, this really is like, and not to knock the fact that it's a film, but this could very easily be turned into a stage play where you have like the geography of the house laid out, and mm -hmm. you're just seeing people go here, there, and everywhere. Yeah, totally. Well, I've I've written it, and so we are. It's it's hopefully in process. We'll see. All right. Well. Then the most important question, I guess, is at this point, then, if it's written as yeah. possible going to happen, does Peter Dinklage come back for a third go? I, I will invite him. <laughs> I would definitely invite him. I'd have to. And I would, I mean, how amazing would that be if he did it? It would just, be, I mean, it's his role. It's his role. I mean, I imagine, I imagine when they asked him to come do it the second time, he had to say only if I can do it a little different, because it's obviously not the same exact performance. So if he can come up with a different way to do it again, I'm sure he'll do it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, something that struck me even upon initial release and for him being as sort of up and coming as he was at the point, how did Alan Tudyuk get cast? Uh, because again, as Matt mentioned, there are a couple American actors in this mostly British farce yeah. and definitely acquits himself with the accent. But I'm just wondering what the thought process was. Yeah, well, that was that was Frank, really. I mean, he was we you know, we had a lot of people going up for the role as as you can imagine it was um you know we were in production or heading into production and i think i can't remember where frank saw him but I, maybe it was uh maybe it was a tape originally or an audition but anyway frank was just like oh my god this is the guy he just knew he just knew and once he'd seen him that was it he was kind of he was just dead set and i remember it was you know yeah there were there were some conversations about it because it was like uh, well you've got to bring him over from america and all these kinds of things it wasn't necessarily the most obvious choice but frank i think just he just knew that that alan had this amazing physical comedy that he could do yeah. he was great with the accent and yeah i mean uh, you know, we've said already, I've been very lucky with Cass. I always, I mean, I'm one of those people because I wasn't like the Firefly kind of person when I was like, when I was younger. So to me, early on in like the, in the early 2000s, I thought Alan was British because I only knew him necessarily from Knight's Tale and from Death at a Funeral. So like it's it's almost in a lot of ways easy for me to see him being able to do it without any questions. But yeah, right. it, now that you know a little bit more, you start to it's like, oh, well, how did that happen? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will believe he can do anything after watching him and I robot because I was taken with how he gave life to like that was my first experience with him is watching him play Sonny mm, right. and just 
the physicality and the mannerisms and then look, even looking at like the behind the scenes footage, even all this time after, it still really holds up. Yeah. Yeah, he's phenomenal. I, yeah. I, I do got to say, uh, out of everything, it, for as much as there are so many great jokes in both versions, when Andy Nyman is stopping the priest to make sure he doesn't get in to see them putting Peter in the, in, in the coffin, everything he comes up with, whether it was on the page of what you wrote or what he came up with, some of the greatest stuff I've ever heard in my life. That is just pure gold to me. Yeah. Well, uh, yes, I agree. And uh, God, I feel like I'm saying how, how I love everyone. It's just really, <laughs> you know, I don't want to be that person, but I do love Andy Nyman. I yeah. think he's one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. And he, so again, to have him on set and, and that wasn't, that was an example where we had stuff on the page. I can't even remember what it was now. And then, and then I think Frank, you know, just said like, just, just go with it. Just, you know, and, and he, and I remember Frank sort of really putting him under pressure, you know, just creating an environment where Andy really felt like under pressure, like you've just got to speak. It doesn't matter what you say, <laughs> just say whatever comes out of your mouth, because that's what this character is doing. And so he had the pressure and then the, and with the priest standing there and he just had to, and, it, and, it, and some of those lines were literally what came out of Andy's mouth without thinking. Uh, yeah, so that was amazing. Yeah, put him in the pressure moment, see what happens. It's Because yeah, yeah. again, for somebody, yeah, for people like, I don't want to say people like me, like I'm the only person, don't get me wrong. But as Mike knows, as a lot of our listeners knows, I'm obsessed with mostly British TV and film more so than anything else. So like there are certain actors and character actors that I have this affinity for. And so when I get to see Andy do anything, a lot of times I'm like, I want to try and introduce him to people. And like, this is the kind of perfect thing for people who don't know him. If you don't want to go straight to ghost stories or something like that, introduce right. him to this, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. That's great. I, it's, it's one, Andy's one of those people that when, yeah, he has a lot of very um, devoted fans, I think. Yeah. yeah. And then you look at, so, just a last note, like you look at some of the other actors in here that, you know, have gone on to have fandoms, especially Matthew McFadden who's, you know, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing his name right. If I'm, I'm, I apologize, sir, if I'm not. But just seeing him in here, like, I'm sure there's going to be people who are crawling his credits for after succession. And it's like, oh, I didn't know he was in that. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, God, I'm going to say that someone else is phenomenal now. <laughs> they, but they all <laughs> are, it makes it sense. You put together a fantastic cast. It's a fantastic cast. It's your damn fault. Yeah, and I mean, you know, and, Credit to Frank, you know, at the time for just sort of pulling that cast together. I mean, it's, oh, it's Frank's fault. Sorry, I, you know, yes, Frank, it's Frank's fault. Shame on you, Mr. Oz. <laughs> and then, but yeah, to see, I mean, to see Matthew in Succession is just is obviously one. I mean, it probably doesn't surprise you that I I love Succession, um, and to see Matthew in it and just being like that incredible character, it just yeah, it's, it just fills me with joy like how how brilliant is he um so yeah i i love everything that kind of gives him more um yeah just brings more people to him and his work and hopefully gets them back to death at a funeral as well potentially yeah. so that's, that's <laughs> no we'll have to do a, we'll a mixed match of the both the casts for the stage version <laughs> we'll go from there yeah. well, <laughs> well either that or you have you have like split runs where it's like original cast goes one season then the remake cast and then mix and matches, and then, you know- And the whole stage cast fresh. Yeah. I love it. Okay, I'm in. Dean, thank you so much for your time. 
Uh, this has been brilliant, sir. It's lovely talking to you too. All right, take care and hope to see you again. Absolutely. Yes, anytime. All right, cheers, guys. Thanks. Dean, Dean Craig, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Dean. Uh, as always, it's always, it's it's one of these things, every time you talk to somebody, you're just like, I know it's going to be a nice discussion. Then you finish, and you're like, oh, man, why couldn't we just kept talking? And honestly, I just would like, talk about nothing with him you know and not necessarily nothing but he didn't even talk about his movies if we could but of course we're here for a reason honestly just the p i i feel like this format really has opened people up to those sorts of interviews and that's again part of what we do here at overdue rentals we want to make people comfortable and talk about things off the beaten path because you know celebrities are people too creatives are people too and they want to be talked to as people i mean Nothing against the interviews that Matt and I have done at our various publications. Those are fun as well. And it's a, it's a nice exercise in keeping your mind limber. But at the same time, when you really get a rapport like we had with Dean, if that happens in like a four or 10 minute phoner or yeah. interview plot, you really think to yourself, I, re I, want, I wonder what we could have talked about if we had half an hour or an hour <laughs> yeah. or a panel. And that's the thing, because we had so much more we wanted to talk to him about. I don't want to, you know, jump the line here and like go, go straight past the estate into death and the funeral. But just to go back with what I mentioned in the intro, since Dean mentioned that it was Chris Rock who reached out saying he wants to kind of do this. And Chris had worked with Neil on, on uh, Nurse Betty. I imagine it was Chris who kind of like said, like, if he didn't want to direct it himself, like it would be interesting to have Neil Labute do this, especially since like we're talking, since it feels like a stage play for people who maybe only know Neil from his movies, which a lot of them, they only know him for because they buy it kind of, besides the funeral, I would say like, you know, they, the remake of The Wicker Man, let's say, um, you know, he's a stage man. So it, it kind of makes sense probably, but going now to talk about the estate first, and, I, and Mike, now here's where I'm going to need your, your better memory than I have. Because Ooh. I see what the estate's about before I watch the movie. And in a lot of ways, I say, well, I've seen that film. I've seen the film of, of the greedy family. And the only, the only film that comes to my mind is Greed with Michael J. Fox and Kirk Douglas, as well as many I others. But I'm not going to go through the whole list of that one as well. I had a feeling you were going to mention that. But, and I, and I started to try and look up other films. And I guarantee there are other films that deal with inheritances and there's always a TV show or a film that may have a plot point that deals with it. But I'm actually, for as much as I think this is, this is a, a normal thing that happened so many times, I can't think of that many other films that were just so centric on that idea. No, now that you mentioned it, I, I really can't either. Like, obviously usually an inheritance is, is used as a plot point more than like a central kernel yeah. for me to hang its hat on. I mean, you want to talk about inheritances, you could look at so many other film noirs or murder mysteries that it's not even funny. But to exactly. your point, you really can't think of that many movies, or at least I, I also cannot think of that many movies, and we're sort of in a mutual stupefaction here. <laughs> movies that actually make the inheritance the central point that make it the the driving raison d'etre for these horrible, horrible people, or yeah. different shades of horrible people. Well, and again, as we talked with Dean, that's that's the good thing about this one. Actually, besides, and we you we did you mentioned it, and, and Dean did talk about it a little bit, but that's it's also that idea of going to Ron Livingston's character because besides Swingers, whereas where I first really saw Ron Livingston, which I think maybe where he first started, I don't know. And really? technically office space, even though 
he's not the most upstanding person in the world in that, Ron Livingston does play a lot of jerks. I don't know, maybe the father in Conjuring, obviously not, but like, I think a lot of people kind of, their mind may go there. So it's nice to see him being, he's the only mostly moral person in this movie. Granted, he tries to kind of go along with it so he doesn't come off that well at certain points, but he is the only true, well, I guess besides uh, Tony's boyfriend who cries all, but that's, he's on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. I, I, to your point, you know, Ron Livingston, we, we kind of have seen him coming up as like the cool jerk with little pit stops, like his absolutely amazing performance in Band of Brothers. And yeah, you know what? It's, it's a funny, it, I, he's one of those people I kind of forget. Every time I start talking about him, I'm like, oh wait, there are so many other movies I forgot or TV shows I forgot that I just ruined everything I said by screwing it up. <laughs> well, you didn't screw it up, it's just, but he, he really did make a good career of honing like the cool jerk role. Yeah. And even in Office Space, like, He's not so much a jerk as just a guy like rebelling against the system, but that's that's you know saved yeah, up for the office. You think talk. about his dinner for schmucks character, and it's like that's uh, where it's like a pure actual jerk off. <laughs> are we doing? Are we gonna do dinner for schmucks? I like dinner for schmucks. Original or remake, or both? Probably, probably both. I think I remember liking both. I don't actually. The, the original, though, the French title is not schmucks, though, right? It's, it's dinner I for think it's dinner for idiots. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's that's, yeah. another, that's another discussion altogether. <laughs> Folks, if you want to see it, you know where to drop us a line. And if you don't, stick around for a little while. It'll come up later in the show. But yeah, no, I mean, like, again, because that's where... I'm not saying that... And again, I don't want to specifically give away the ending, per se, but, you know, that what you think is that final moral compass speech is not the type of moral compass speech that you were expecting in a, in this typical type of, uh, you know, uh, romp, I will put it. Uh, you know, it's, it's Tony at the end of the day is still not the best person in the world. Though she's not, she's not a horrible person. Yeah. Well, no, no, even in the beginning, this movie doesn't make, it doesn't make Tony Collette to be yeah. perfect because she really is wishy-washy and not, she doesn't stand firm. She doesn't call people out on their shit. Because if she did, Anna Ferris wouldn't have got away with half of the shit that she did. <laughs> and again, just bringing this back to Tony and Anna, because not not to not to disregard anyone else in yeah. the cast. But again, murderers row. But Tony and especially Anna, like watching her in those that first act, just really made me happy because she's always been someone that goes for it. And even when the environment around her is not the best, like the scary movie movies. She's still going for it. She's still just ready yeah, well, for anything. And it does not, and, and yeah, just well, this, this is, is. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no. Well, I'm saying this is one of those situations where even in, even though 100% it's not the perfectly grounded story, that, you know, it's a lot of the situations would be way too uh, convenient to happen all at once the, the way they do in this film compared to a lot of the other Anna stuff you'd see. And I'm not talking about even scary movie. I'm talking about, let's say, even the remake of um, of Overboard they did or something like that, where she gets... This This seems to be the most real-world situation where she gets to be that person in. So she's, she gets to have that energy where she's kind of just like, just like, oh, I want to do this. I want to scheme this. I want to scheme this. But, but, she, but she gets to hold it back where it's not totally farcical in a way. Not going to lie, I didn't totally disliked the Overboard remake. I thought it was 
pretty solid. And I didn't, she's part of I didn't hate it, but I didn't like it. I, I, I appreciate I, again, I appreciate the way they try to do things at least differently somewhat. Yeah. Yeah. But again, uh, we need to get Anna Ferris on this show. We do. She's a podcaster. Anna Ferris, please come on our show. Invitations out. <laughs> everybody from everybody from the estate, if they still want to come in and 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 you know, everybody from us. both death and the funerals, including by all means, English three times. You know, <laughs> so we get everybody in, and then we get Dean back, and then we just have this like the Craigiverse panel. Yeah. We need to book Comic Con immediately. Well, yeah. Let's now talking about the death of the funeral because I remember when the original came out. It was two thousand seven, and I mean I don't remember. Um, it's not like one of these things where like I remember you know like leading up to it and then and coming out, but I remember it coming out and seeing the returns for it, and just being like, oh, what what is going on here? This is this is this is something that you know is is, is you know why wasn't this on my radar before it came out? This is something Johnny alert the media. <laughs> By gamma dammy, why didn't you tell me about this before? They've got everybody in this film. Uh, I don't know where that voice came from. Oh they even God. had a death at a funeral for crying out loud. They even had a death at a funeral. But yeah, no, it's 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 something, and you know, it's something that with I think with all good humor, and I feel weird saying this sometimes because I think I actually I remember seeing Wes Studi talking about his time on Mystery Men. And talking about how what he thought was funny was that the entire, because it's him and a bunch of comedians and he's not a comedian and watching them all on set. And the idea was that all of them just trying to make each other laugh. But the idea is that they don't laugh. They just say, that's funny. And when they say that's funny, that's like the highest compliment. That's like somebody in the back row of a stand-up show laughing their ass off to the point they're almost annoying, you know? And Death at the Funeral, whether you laughed at some of the jokes or not, even you watch them again after and you don't laugh out loud, but you're like, that's, that's smart. That's funny. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's, I, yeah. think, I think that's what leads to sort of the infinite retellability and maybe even rewatchability of Death at a Funeral, where a well-put-together farce knocks you on your ass the first time. Like, you're never going to get to go back to the first time you watched A Fish Called Wanda. You're yep. never going to get to watch Noises Off again for the first time. But you'll still laugh heartily at jokes you'll still have favorites. You'll still have moments that you you treasure and then you'll still be able to sit there. And like you said, it's the that's funny paradigm where it's like, yeah, this this just works so brilliantly. Oh, the connection to that punchline. Oh, Peter Vaughn naked on the roof at the end. Like just, it's, it, it, you admire it for its construction and simplicity, but at the same time, it just bowls you over. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, you know, if we spent time talking about every single person that was in all three of these movies, we wouldn't have had a discussion with Dean. We just would have been just talking about, like, because again, the estate with the cast, the fact you have Kathleen Turner in the, you yes. know, as, as the aunt. Oh my God. And then you forgot, I almost forgot to mention Peter Vaughn, man. Peter Vaughn, you know, oh yeah, now Peter Vaughn, who's a legend and people know, people have seen him one way or another, but most people now are going to know him because of Game of Thrones. Yeah. You thought something saw, else? You had you had you had another thing that people thought? Oh no! I just said Brazil because that's one of my. One as of a my, child, that's probably the first time I saw him. You know, and and that's in Brazil. Yeah. That's one of my favorite performances. His just because of well, that we'll save that for the Brazil episode. If there is a Brazil episode, but anyway. Uh, and uh, this is also a film that, you know, Death of, Death of the, at a Funeral came out in 2007 with the British original. The yep. remake came out in 2010, if I remember correctly. Yep. This was that prime era where 
And I think it's, it, you still see it happening every now and then now, but this was the prime era where foreign films, even, you know, this is a British film, this is not that foreign, but international films, if they had like a whiff of success, you would see people jump to that to, to, re, to get the remake rights and to do it. And I forget if it was, uh, did we mention, we mentioned Jennifer Schmuck on audio, right? I wasn't sure if that was before or... Jennifer Schmucks, yes, not, I mean, not with Dean, yeah. okay. between us. Jennifer yes. Schmucks was another one, uh, Let the Right One In was another one, which I, well, I also, really want to, I want to have a conversation about Let the Right One In and Let Me In. There's, there's also, a, yeah, there's also movies that never got made. I think, I think, oh yeah, Mark Wahlberg, I think, bought like the rights to like almost every single Scandinavian film and like hasn't made half of them. I think he has the rights to Troll Hunter. Um, uh, did he do Pusher? Did he buy the rights for Pusher? And, and Headhunters as well. I don't know about Pusher, but I know. And just uh, oh, I, I just had one and it left my mind. Well, I think Contraband was the one he made. Contraband was was the one, one that they got remember. remade, and then after that, like all of them just like never happened. I'm trying to think. There was there. There's been like several where it's a hot commodity, and oh, let's not forget Infernal Affairs became The Departed. Yep. Sorry, The Departed. <laughs> Gotta say it right. It's the departed. I never saw the, the the sequels they made to Infernal Affairs. I only saw the first one. I still need to see Infernal Affairs, and I'm wondering if they were going to lean on more of those heavily with the proposed sequel they did want to make. But mm. you know, we'll, we'll save that for the Infernal Affairs episode. <laughs> uh, look, folks, uh, if you really want to call us out on our shit and make sure some of these episodes get made, if we mention anything that you want. Uh, Maybe you should uh, drop us a line after we mention the, the, the magic email address. If you don't already know it, and why wouldn't you know it? This is Overdue Rentals. You're listening to us. We assume it's because you know us, or, or maybe you're just a big Dean Craig fan. I, I will say, to, just to, to make sure we still cover a few things on Death at a Funeral, I think what's interesting, I think I told you this before, um, before, we, before we got on here, because we were talking about re-watching the movies. That I felt that the everything right? Yeah, no. I felt that the remake oddly moved quicker than the original, but it's so strange how, in so many ways, they are. It is just that original script. It's almost the same movie, and the things that are changed are just so minimal. And it's not like even like again changing it for an American audience, changing it for an African American audience, whatever you want to call it, it. It doesn't change that much. And look, if someone can say that and come out saying that they enjoyed it, or even if you just come out saying, you know what, I liked it as much as the original, that's that's a win. Again, I that's kind of why I want to talk about, no, it's exactly why I want to talk about let the right one in and let me in. Okay. Because that was another wonderful example of, it was really more of a localization change and maybe some tweaks here and there. But for the most part, let me in and let the right one in are the same thing it's just viewing it from a different cultural lens with a couple changes and both are wonderful have you watched any of the tv show yet no i really want to i don't have a showtime uh i well i'll i'll find a way for you to see it i haven't watched it either and i mean i don't think it was necessary but again my father ended up after seeing let the right one in my father read the book and he told me some stuff that happens in the book. And I'm like, oh my God, because there's a lot uh, more. Cool. I don't know how much you know. And we'll save this for our Let the Right One In and Let, the, let, the, let Me In. We're doing it, folks. Yeah. We're doing a Let the Right One In episode. Let but, the yeah, Right a lot One of In stuff, and Let Me In. A lot of the stuff he, he told me about is specifically about the relationship between her and her um, 
uh, hand I don't know what you want to call it. Um, yeah. Not only, not only just about the relationship specifically, but like apparently his character is like pretty prominent throughout the entire book. And in the sense where like he's constantly decaying and he keeps showing up. And okay, like we, just, we need to read the book too. Yeah, he's Let's just like this horrific. He's just a horrific monster. Just like keeps showing up. Like I, I don't know. I'm just you know. Yeah, we definitely. I think we we should start doing some episodes where we read the books too, and just sort of dive into the adaptation of it all. I don't know if we'd want to save that for an exclusive or what have you, but coming soon to Patreon when Patreon comes soon. <laughs> well, yeah, we really should discuss that, but well, yeah, well. You know, Everybody who's heard already, because I think we've we discussed it on air, that Mike has recently moved. And uh, once he is settled in, we're going to have a, a, a good long meeting so we can get that stuff finally off the ground. Yeah, I mean, we're coming up to the middle 60s in our episodes mm-hmm. and things are kind of, you know, take. they seem to be maybe taken off or at least mm-hmm. it feels like it. <laughs> Folks, if you could see Matthew's face right now, he's making a pulling a really fun, goofy face. Well, which... I actually, to be honest with everybody, I, I accidentally bit the inside of my mouth earlier, and ah, uh, I keep like that's not fun. I keep like having to you know feel it now, you know. So it's like it's one of those things. It's impulsive. Everybody does it. So a lot of my faces are probably looking very strange on camera. Coming soon to Patreon when Patreon comes soon. That's what you'll be paying for here, folks. <laughs> That and, I don't know, extra outtakes of me probably being cranky. Or me being cranky. Are we cranky? Lovably so, I would say. (laughs) Those who can't see the video, my mouth is closed when I do that noise. Even more impressive, folks. I'm going to cut that. Put that Patreon money aside right now. (laughs) Yes, the, the... a hundred dollar tier gets you Matthew baby crying noises. No, that's I'm the gonna, only thing. I'm gonna cut that. I, we don't need that in here. Anyway, everybody, don't you got it, coward? Everybody, I think this don't is be time a coward, for you, Matthew Shookman. Do not be a coward and go catch the estate as it comes out this weekend, Friday, November fourth. Go go catch death of death of the funeral. You can watch the original right now on Tubi, as well as some other places, but Tubi, uh, again, because we like the way Tubi works. We have to, you know what, let's get somebody from Tubi, let's get the person who runs Tubi on here to talk about how appreciative we are of the fact that when they do ad breaks, they do them right. But- Hell, if we're going to get streaming people on here, let's get, I think someone, uh, one of the programming directors from Shudder, I think, was looking for podcasts to go on. Come on on, guys. But yes, you can watch the original uh, Death of Death at a Funeral. Every time I say it, I want to say Death at a, Death of a Salesman. I apologize, everybody. You can watch the original Death at a Funeral on Tubi right now, and you can watch the remake on Netflix right now. If you're in, this is of course if you're in the U.S. I don't know what the streaming options are right now overseas. I apologize. But this would be a great time for NordVPN to be one of our sponsors. Come on on, Nord. Uh, so yes, go cross it off your list. Cross those off your list, and then let us know what you thought. Let us know if you want to complain to us about it and disagree with us if you want to talk to us more about it but in the meantime mike where can people find us well when we're not busy fighting over who gets the patreon money for the month's uh, allotment of wardrobe changes and, and set decoration you can find us oh yes well clearly matthew went out this month because if you saw the video he's taking off the sweater that he misappropriated from our funds anyway if you want to find the actual goings-on of our show and not just the nutty shenanigans that we put on air you can find us on tiktok and instagram at overdue rentals show on twitter at rentals overdue and on facebook at overdue rentals 
And if you are paying attention during the show and actually do want to send us love letters, recommendations, and even just comments about how you enjoyed the estate opening this weekend or death of a... Uh, death of a... Death, I death screwed up, guys. Death at a funeral. Pony pool. Pony pool. Death oh, we got it. We got it. There's going to be a pony pool episode. Oh, there totally is. But if you want to tell us how much you enjoyed the estate opening in theaters November 4th, or Death at a Funeral on Tubi or on Netflix, depending on which version you choose, or Death of a Salesman, which is on Broadway with Wendell Pierce, I believe, leading the cast, and I'm hearing fantastic things. You just want to talk about any of that. Go ahead, send us an email at overdurentals at gmail.com. Our inbox is open for love letters, all that other stuff. Uh, we like you. You're our listeners. We like to treat you like not just customers, but friends. And friends that visit our rental store who want to find not only the currently checked out copy of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but also any of the other wonderful episodes that we've done on this show. You want to find us, we want to find you. We want to make the connection happen. As such, you can find our show wherever you ethically source your podcast. Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, Stitcher, Audible. Wherever you, wherever you go, there we are in the podcast world. And while you're searching for us on the internet, don't worry about those photos involving the Pikachu onesie. That was just a gag that didn't pull. I mean, it's, 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 it's in progress. It's a bit. New York Comedy Festival's coming up whatever. But if you actually want to rate, review, and subscribe to us, and you really do, trust me, you should just go ahead and do all of those things on whatever platform you choose, because we want to know what can keep, what keeps the rental counter open. What do you like listening to? What do you dislike listening to? Anything. But friends, family, and listeners, I believe it's time for us to sign off with a hearty and hail Blah bye at a funeral of a salesman. Bye bye at a funeral of a salesman's estate. <laughs>